Imagine that you're at a dinner party. You're eating a delicious beef stew. You ask your host for the recipe and she says, okay, well, the secrets in the meat. You need to use well-seasoned golden retriever. Now, chances are for somebody who does regularly eat meat, this person's experience would immediately change, right? What they just saw moments ago as food, they would now see as a dead animal. What they just saw or felt was delicious, they would now feel is disgusting. So the perceptions completely changes, even though nothing about the meat itself actually changes. And this is what carnism does. does, does. That's Dr. Melanie Joy. And this is The Proof Podcast. Hey, beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. I hope that you've been keeping well. For new listeners, I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Please do sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In my childhood, really, I think it was my my relationship with my dog, Fritz, that really put me on the path that led me to write Why We Love Dogs and do the work that I do today. Like so many people in the United States and also elsewhere, I, I grew up with a dog who I, I loved like a family member. I certainly was a person who, you know, cared about animals and would never cause them to suffer, especially when that suffering was so intensive and so completely unnecessary. And like most people, I also grew up eating animals, a lot of animals. I was like the meat lover's pizza girl. For much of my life, I never thought about how strange it was that I could pet my dog with one hand, you know, while I ate a pork chop with the other, a pork chop that had once been an animal who was at least as intelligent and sensitive as my dog. What happened was that one day in 1989, when I was uh, 23 years old, it's a long time ago, I ended up eating a contaminated hamburger with Campylobacter and I got wildly sick. I wound up hospitalized on intravenous antibiotics. And after that experience, I stopped eating meat. And it wasn't because of, in, you know, in my mind, any ethical reasons. It was because, that, you know, like when you get wildly ill, you just don't want to eat the last thing that made you sick. So I became a vegetarian and shortly thereafter a vegan sort of by accident. And I was looking for information about my new diet. I was looking for, you know, what do I eat? What do I buy? How do I cook? And of course, this exploration led me to discover information about animal agriculture. And what I learned just shocked and horrified me. I, I couldn't believe the extent of the violence toward non-human animals. I couldn't believe what was happening to the environment. I was also learning about the impact on my own body, on my own health. But of course, it was 1989, so there wasn't as much information about human health implications of eating animals. So I was really shocked. What shocked me in some ways even more was that nobody I talked to about what I was discovering wanted to hear what I had to say. And these were like my friends and my family members. They were people just like I was. They were rational and compassionate. But the response was always, 
something like, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal, you know, or they might even call me a crazy vegan hippie propagandist. And I then became very curious. And I asked myself, you know, how is it that rational, compassionate people can just stop thinking and feeling when it comes to what could only be called a global atrocity. And that's really what led me to study psychology, the psychology of violence and nonviolence more broadly, which I wrote about in later years, and, and specifically to write my doctoral dissertation on the psychology of eating animals. I remember I started out saying, oh my God, you're not going to believe what I've learned. You know, really just very naively and very innocently, simply trying to share the facts with them. Like, this is what's happening to the animals. And this is what's happening to our environment. I, I can't believe this. But the reaction was so defensive. It was like this, this wall would go up. And then, of course, all of these stereotypes about me, you know, that they never held before in their minds started coming out. You're an extremist. But extremists participating in this global atrocity, you know, they would come up with all sorts of reasons and rationalizations and, and go through what I later realized were all sorts of mental gymnastics to basically invalidate my message. Of course, that made me amp up the volume. And then the conversation, of course, became so heated that it was sort of like, we just don't talk about this anymore. This is the issue that nobody discusses in the family or in my circle of friends. What is going on psychologically so that people who actually share these values of, of compassion and justice, you know, which is just caring and fairness, What's going on psychologically that they do not respond to information that would help them to do less harm, but rather to actually defend their right to oppress, which is really what they were doing without realizing it. And so we do know that all of us need to maintain a positive self-concept. You know, we all need to feel like we're living a moral life. We want to feel good about who we are, even if we feel guilty for so some of the things that we do. And so when you have this Cognitive dissonance is what it's called. This cognitive dissonance is the internal discomfort that we feel when our values, and in this case, we're talking about the core, the universal values of compassion and, and justice, caring and fairness, when our values and our behaviors are not aligned, when we act against our values. And so when we feel this cognitive dissonance, it's an uncomfortable feeling. There are basically three ways to mitigate this or offset the discomfort that's caused by this feeling. We can change our values to match our behaviors, meaning we can say to ourselves, okay, I'm really not a kind person. I'm not a very good person. And it is what it is. But of course, we don't do that. Most people, at least research has shown that most people want to and need to feel like we're living moral lives. We can change our behaviors to match our values. In this case, it would mean to stop eating animals. Or we can change our perception of our behaviors so that they seem to match our values. And here is where we can see all of these mental gymnastics where we justify and we deny and we minimize. And perhaps most importantly, the system that we are born into or the systems that we are born into give us the tools to do just this. When I describe this system that basically provides us with the tools to mitigate or manage this cognitive dissonance that we experience. This is the system that I came to call carnism. And this is really what my research, when I was doing my doctoral research, led me to identify. 
Carnism is the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. It's, uh, it's essentially the opposite of veganism. We tend to assume that only vegans and vegetarians follow a belief system when it comes to eating animals. But the only reason we learn to eat pigs but not dogs, for example, is because we do follow a belief system when it comes to eating animals. When eating animals is not a necessity for survival, which is true for many, not all, but many people in the world today, then it's a choice. And choices always stem from beliefs. We just don't recognize this choice because we've been born into this belief system called carnism. A good way to understand what I'm talking about on a more experiential level is to imagine that you're at a dinner party and you're eating a delicious beef stew and you ask your host for the recipe and she says, okay, well, the secret's in the meat. You need to use well-seasoned golden retriever. Now, chances are you, you don't eat animals, but for somebody who does regularly eat meat, this person's experience would immediately change, right? What they just saw moments ago as food, they would now see as a dead animal. What they just saw or felt was delicious they would now feel is disgusting. So the perceptions completely changes, even though nothing about the meat itself actually changes. And this is what carnism does. Carnism is structured in order that people who care about their impact on other individuals, including other animals, act against their values, act against their own interests and the interests of others without fully realizing what they're doing. So even more specifically, carnism, this system, teaches us to distort our perceptions when it comes to the meat, eggs, and dairy of those animals we've learned to classify as edible. So when we see hamburgers, we don't immediately see dead cows. We just see meat. We don't feel disgusted. We feel appetized. And therefore, we act accordingly information alone is not enough. I mean, we need to raise awareness and it not simply awareness of the reality of what's happening to animals and what's happening to the environment or even what's happening to our own bodies when we consume these carnistic products, right? We need to raise awareness of carnism itself, which is the system that conditions us to disconnect intellectually or psychologically and emotionally from the truth of our experience. In my book, I talk about this knowing without knowing, you know, on one level, we know that somebody has to die for our plates whenever we eat carnistic products, meat, eggs, or dairy. But on another level, we don't make the emotional connection with that knowing, and we don't even really make the psychological connection with that knowing. So raising awareness means helping people recognize the facts of animal agriculture and its consequences, and ideally emotionally connect with that reality. But it also means helping people recognize carnism, because once you recognize what I refer to as this carnistic defenses or defense mechanisms, which I'll explain in just a moment, these defenses lose a lot of their power over you. Carnism is, first of all, it's a special kind of system. It's dominant. What that means is that it is so widespread that it is seen, its tenets, its teachings are seen as a given rather than a choice, right? Eating animals is just the way things are. 
We don't even learn to question it. When a system is dominant, that means that its teachings, its tenets, you know, and the attitudes that go along with it are basically woven through the entire structure of society. They shape norms, laws, beliefs, behaviors, etc. What we call institutionalized, they're embraced and maintained by all of the major social institutions. So, you know, nutrition and medicine and business and, you know, religion. And we learn to believe in carnism, you know, through all of these major institutions. And we therefore don't recognize the system for what it is. So, for example, when we study nutrition, we are generally studying carnistic nutrition, but we don't see carnistic bias because it's so entrenched. Now, carnism is also a a violent system or a system of oppression. As I said earlier, it runs counter to core human values. And so most people would never willingly participate in the global atrocity that is carnism if they really understood it for what it is. And so therefore, systems like carnism, these oppressive systems, need to use psychological defense mechanisms Basically, these mechanisms distort our perceptions so that we disconnect from our natural empathy for others, other non-human animals in this case. We disconnect from the truth of our own emotional experience and we act accordingly. So I'll give you an example of what these look like. One defense is abstraction. We learn to see farmed animals as abstractions, as lacking any individuality or personality of their own. So we learn to believe, for example, that a a pig is a pig and all pigs are the same. Of course, it's much easier to participate in violence toward pigs if we don't recognize that like dogs, like all individual beings, they have lives and personalities and sentience and intelligence. Another example is justification. You know, the way that we learn to justify eating animals is by learning to believe that the myths, this mythology of eating animals, are the facts of eating animals. Eating animals is normal, natural, and necessary. We hear this over and over and over again. So we just accept this as fact rather than recognizing that it's nothing more than a set of widely held opinions. They are distancing mechanisms. You know, they distance us from the emotions, most notably our empathy, you know, that would prevent us from participating in violence toward others. And, you know, carnism, it conditions us to be defensive against any information that would actually help us get outside the carnistic box. We don't even realize we're in. And this is really the challenge. When we are born into such a dominant system as carnism, we learn to look at the world through the lens of carnism. We internalize its way of thinking, its teachings, and its defenses. And this is what makes conversations about veganism and about carnism so tricky. And you might have experienced this yourself. You know, sometimes you just say, I'm vegan, and all of a sudden, this wall goes up, or all of a sudden you might start hearing from somebody who never even heard the word veganism before. You might start hearing all the reasons you're wrong about your own lifestyle and and ideology, right? There are so many ways that people learn to defend against veganism, but the system conditions people who are generally conscientious and well-intentioned and who would never willingly support such violence 
It conditions them to defend the very thing that would deeply offend them if they were more aware. How do we communicate around this issue, veganism, you know, versus what I came to call carnism? And and even more broadly, how do we communicate around any issues when we have a difference of opinion, particularly one that's really morally charged? It's very difficult for people to communicate effectively in general because we haven't learned how to do so. And then when you look at vegans and we're communicating about an issue that is morally charged that we feel so strongly about, you know, once you wake up to the reality of what's happening in the world, you can feel this incredible sense of urgency, this moral outrage, you know, grief, uh, all of these emotions that are totally understandable and legitimate and want to do everything in your power to stop the bloodshed. And on top of it, you haven't been empowered with the tools to communicate effectively. So most vegans, just like most people, would do well to learn the principles and tools of effective communication and healthy relating in order to increase the chances that their message will be heard as they intend it to be. Many people are simply not ready or able to become fully vegan even though they might believe in the principles of veganism and they believe that veganism makes sense for them. We assume many people who are promoting veganism or advocating veganism are those people who became vegan relatively quickly, you know, from one day to the next and assume, well, because this is the way I changed, I made the connection. This is the way everybody should change. And if people don't change like that, it means they don't care. But human psychology is much more messy and complicated than that. And for any number of reasons, many people feel that they cannot become fully vegan right away. And so I do speak to this issue that vegans often understandably, yet in my opinion, mistakenly assume that either you're vegan and you're part of the solution or you're not vegan and you're part of the problem. And what this does is prevent like 99% of the global population from contributing to a cause that needs all the help it can get. So we approach this at Beyond Carnism by encouraging people to do two things. One is to become vegan allies. You know, a vegan ally is a supporter of veganism as a belief system, as a practice, and of vegans, the people who carry out this practice, even though they're not fully vegan themselves. And some of the people in my own life, in my own experience, who have done the most to help the cause are not people who simply don't eat animals for their entire lifetime. They are people like journalists or interviewers, for example, who write up an interview or publish an interview with me that reaches perhaps hundreds of thousands, even millions of people raising awareness of this issue. Some of the people who donate to my organization that's entirely dependent on donations, they're not vegan, but they really believe in and want to help make a vegan world. So they're the reason that we can do the work that we're doing. So we encourage people to be vegan allies and to use this phrase directly and openly. And I have many memories of people journalists hugging me saying, thank you for letting me be a vegan ally and really feeling a sense of ownership in the transformation of carnism. Social movements like, you know, the vegan movement, they don't succeed just because of the core group of inner activists. They they succeed because enough of the public supports the cause to tip the scales of power. And a part of being a vegan ally is a commitment to being as vegan as possible, right? You can say, when we advocate, when I advocate, I never say, 
go vegan or why don't you become vegan? Because as the activist Henry Spira said, if you go into a negotiation asking for all or nothing, you're probably going to end up with nothing. If we ask people to be as vegan as possible, what we're really doing is, I mean, number one, it's the only respectful thing you can ask from somebody. You're allowing them to be the expert on their own choices, on their own ideology. Like nobody, how could I know what's possible for somebody else? It's also the only rational ask because nobody can be more vegan than what's possible for them. And frankly, if everyone in the world were truly as vegan as possible, the world would become vegan fairly quickly. And so people are much less defensive when you say, why don't you just try to be as vegan as possible? What are they going to say? No, I'm not going to be as vegan as possible. So it, it really opens up the conversation. When we make comparisons, number one, we need to really ask ourselves whether these comparisons are going to be highlighting abuses and atrocities that other groups of individuals have experienced and therefore could be triggering to these other individuals and groups. And I can use myself as an example, because in my earlier days of talking about the issue, I did actually sometimes compare slavery, different types of slavery with animal suffering. And I was rightly educated as to why that practice is problematic. Another comparison that's problematic is when we compare the experience of the victims of these different oppressive systems. You know, the experience of each set of victims will always be somewhat unique. So if you compare, you know, animals in factory farms with, for example, people who were in um, concentration camps during the Holocaust, that's obviously going to be triggering and offensive. All of that said, I think it's important to compare the systems themselves and more specifically the mentality. Because even though the experience of each set of victims will always be unique, the systems, carnism, patriarchy, racism, classism, and so on and so forth, these systems are structurally similar. And most important of all, the mentality that drives oppression is the same. Some vegans compare practices, not systems, but, but practices, the practice of eating animals to the practice of dairy production, for example, where you have to use forced insemination in order to carry out dairy production. They compare that to, to the rape of human women. That is very problematic because when we're looking at the mentality, right, the mentality of somebody who eats animals today is quite different than the mentality of somebody who would justify raping people today. When a practice is, you know, normalized and widespread, I'm not saying that it's not problematic or it's not violent. It obviously is. However, that requires a very different psychology than the psychology required to engage in violence when that form of violence is not a widespread social norm. I've heard this before, too. Some vegans say when you talk about meat-free Mondays, they say, oh, like rape-free Thursdays or something. You're somehow not asking for enough. And I understand where that perspective comes from, you know, where, again, we're vegans who are, you know, often traumatized and, you know, feel this sense of urgency say, like, what are you talking about? Once you've made the connection and you feel like viscerally and so emotionally the reality that what's happening to non-human animals is just is is completely um, you identify the violence and the exploitation inherent in that any ask that's not go vegan now. It feels like a concession. You know, it feels like you're giving up, you're giving in. 
this is what I would describe as ideology devoid of psychology. Like, okay, we have an ideological perspective. We recognize that, you know, veganism is ideologically, it's morally consistent, but human psychology is messy and it's complicated. And it's really important for us to communicate in a way that increases the chances that people will make the kinds of changes we need them to make if we hope to really make a difference for farmed animals and beyond. People do not respond. Um, most people, number one, transition slowly. And, you know, asking somebody to stop eating animals is not simply asking for a change of behavior. It's asking for a change of perspective, a change, a shift of consciousness, a change of lifestyle. Potentially, it's asking for them to compromise important relationships in their lives. Relationships do not have to end because one person becomes vegan when people know how to uh, relate effectively, but very often they do end up ending. And there's a profound arrogance in assuming that anybody needs our permission to live their lives the way that they choose to. We are not in a position to give people moral permission to do something or not. That stance is arrogant and it's, it's also misinformed. If we want to change people's behaviors whereby, you know, they no longer actually have permission to do something, then that's called legislating. That's what legislation is for. When it comes to advocacy and communicating in a way to encourage people to change their behaviors, if we approach people as the adult people, as though they need our permission to do something or not, if we approach adult people and present them with an all or nothing option, we are very likely going to reduce the chances that those people are receptive to the message that we need them to hear. Shame is a extremely demotivating emotion. When we feel shame, that means we feel a harm to our dignity. You know, our dignity is our sense of inherent worth. We are worthy of being treated with, with respect, essentially, or being alive on this planet the way others are. Most people carry around a tremendous amount of shame in their lives. We've been born into a very shaming world. We've been born into a profoundly relationally dysfunctional world. Relational dysfunction, a dysfunction in the way we relate to each other as individuals and as social groups and to ourselves, it is so widespread. I, I say that we've, we're still living in the relational dark ages, the way that we treat others and ourselves. And so most of us have a lot of shame because we've been harmed. Our dignity has been harmed. We've been talked down to. We've learned. We've learned to judge ourselves and to judge others harshly and relentlessly. And at the same time, most of us also try to hide our shame, you know, from others and also from ourselves. We feel ashamed of feeling ashamed often. So we assume that others don't carry around the shame that they do. And most of us are understandably very defensive against being shamed. I mean, just think about your own experience. If you're talking to somebody and you can sense that they're going to say something that communicates that you're an immoral person or that you are somehow inferior or less than, you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you are probably going to withdraw or attack in self-defense. You are probably not going to be receptive to what they have to share with you, especially when what they have to share with you are ways for you to behave more ethically or more morally. So shame demotivates. And many advocates, vegan advocates and advocates for other social causes, use shame 
as a motivator, thinking that if I point out how this person is bad or wrong or their behaviors are bad or wrong, it's going to motivate them to change. Some people say, well, I was ashamed and I changed. I would suggest that some people change in spite of their shame, but not because of it. The flip side of shame is contempt. Shame is the feeling of being less than. When we feel contempt, that's an indication that we have placed ourselves in a position of superiority, in particular, uh, a position of moral superiority. So contempt is a, a red flag. One thing we can do is ask ourselves when we're communicating, do I feel contempt? Do I feel like I'm in a position of moral superiority? Because I said earlier that that shame, it's a very real emotion, but the emotion stems from believing in an illusion. And the illusion is that there is some hierarchy of moral worth, that some individuals or some groups are more morally worthy, you know, worthy of respect, have more intrinsic worth than others. Contempt is the same. It's just the flip side. It's, it's also the emotion is real, but it stems from an illusion and this illusion that somehow I am morally superior to you. I've talked about this a lot with vegans. And one of the questions I get from vegans is often, well, what do we do if we actually know that we're morally superior? It is morally superior to not eat animals. And to this, I would say, you know, what I'm talking about here, number one, is not, I, I would avoid the term superior and inferior when we're actually talking about this issue and, and trying to cultivate change. And these terms don't serve us except to highlight the problematic feelings and attitudes that they engender. How do you decide whether somebody is morally better than somebody else? All of us, every human being, you know, each of us is simply the product of the hard wiring and the biology that we've been born with and every single experience that we have had throughout our lives. We can never be anything more nor less than this. And so, you know, we have vegans, often white vegans, who are saying, look at how great I am because I'm not eating animals. I'm so much more ethical than you without recognizing the tremendous amounts of privilege that have put them in a position where not only can they make their food choices freely, but they can actually access compassion for animals. You know, I say, and I, I believe this very strongly, that to, to feel compassion is a privilege we should be so grateful for. I mean, just think about one bad day that you've had. Think about that one day where, like, let's say you're, you're traveling and you're sitting in the days when we used to fly and you're sitting in economy and you've got your knees up under your chin and people are screaming around you and your flight is delayed and everything is going wrong. Think about how hard it is for you to be the kind of person you know you can be and that you want to be and that you feel good about after one bad day. We, we lose access to our compassion when we undergo these various stressors and harms, affronts to our dignity. So when we are in a position to access and act on our compassion, and then to bring these ideas of compassion out to others and to the world, we have tremendous privilege to be able to do that. And we should feel, in my opinion, a tremendous amount of gratitude rather than contempt for people who are not doing it. One of the ways that we become conditioned by this relationally dysfunctional world that we've been born into 
is by being taught to believe that the way we derive our own sense of worth, our own sense of personal power is from having more than another. We've learned this. You just turn on the TV or open up Facebook. You don't even have to go that far. Watch your own parents and their parents. Like the way that we've learned to enhance our own sense of worth as beings is by comparing ourselves to others and feeling better about ourselves based on how we measure up. And this feeds this, you know, tendency to shame others as a way to boost ourselves up. It feeds our tendency to feel contempt and to shame others. And then, of course, you know, the cycle perpetuates itself because we feel shame and then we counter shame as a way to boost ourselves up and shame others. I mean, these behavior studies have shown that these types of behaviors, non I call them non-relational behaviors because they harm relationships, including our relationships with ourselves. You know, these kinds of non-relational behaviors are contagious. They tend to spread themselves. I mean, the good news is that relational behaviors are also contagious. You know, the more we engage in, in relational behaviors, which are behaviors that I define as those which reflect integrity, meaning they reflect this practice of compassion and justice toward others and ourselves, you know, reflect integrity and honor dignity. The more we engage in those, the more we feed the pool of relationality, as it were. I think it's important to recognize that many vegans and beyond veganism, people who are working to end other types of atrocities, not just the atrocity of carnism, are traumatized, you know, often have become traumatized by by what they have seen, what they have witnessed. An atrocity is essentially a mass traumatic event. Carnism is a tra- an atrocity. It's a mass traumatic event. You know, more farmed animals are slaughtered in a single day than the total number of people killed in all wars throughout history. When you open your eyes to the reality of this atrocity, when you see the graphic images of what's happening every second of every day, it is virtually impossible not to have some degree of traumatization from that. And trauma affects the psyche in a variety of ways. And the more traumatized we become, this is kind of an irony, for, for many people, the more traumatized they become, the more they feed on traumatic material. You know, so you have vegans, for example, who have witnessed this traumatic material, who can't stop themselves from watching over and over again, almost compulsively, or who feel obligated to witness because they feel like if they stop feeling, you know, traumatized, they're going to stop caring. And if they stop caring, they'll stop being part of the solution. So when we become traumatized, we can start developing what I call a trauma narrative. We, what this means is we start seeing the world as though it's one giant traumatic event with only three roles to be played. Like in a trauma, there are three roles to be played. You can either be a victim of the trauma, you can be a perpetrator of it, or you can be a hero. Some people say, well, what about a witness? A witness takes one of these two roles. They're either, you know, a hero, they're helping to offset it, or they're a victim of it. But anyway, and we start, as we become increasingly traumatized, we start placing everyone, including ourselves, into one of these three roles and losing our capacity for nuance. So you're either with us or you're against us. You're either, you know, the enemy or the freedom fighter. You're good or you're bad. You're right or you're wrong. If you're not a 
perfect vegan, if you're not 100% vegan 100% of the time, well, then you're not a hero. And then you must be a perpetrator because you're not one of the animals hanging in a slaughterhouse. So this kind of thinking leads to a toxic moral perfectionism. It's a toxic moral perfectionism that plagues the vegan movement. It plagues many movements. It plagues the world in many ways. And it's really important for us to recognize it for what it is so that we decrease our own levels of traumatization by witnessing less and taking care of ourselves. Asking people to become as vegan as possible or as plant-based as possible is, in my opinion, a very simple practical solution because we don't worry about talking about reduction versus non-reduction. Nobody can be more vegan than what's possible for them. So this ask kind of solves multiple problems at once, I think, where we can be, vegans can be true to the vegan goal and at the same time ask something in a way that reduces the chances that people will be defensive against it. On other practical levels, right? How do we how do we communicate in a way that increases the chances our message will be heard the way we intend it to be? I'll share a couple of, of tips. Probably the most important principle for people to keep in mind is to value the process more than the content of a communication. Now, let me explain what this means and unpack this a little bit. All communication has these two parts. The content is what we are communicating about. So here, the content of our communication is communication, right? The content is constantly changing. We could be communicating about whether to stay home or go out on a Saturday night, or we could be communicating about whether, you know, to have carnistic products in the refrigerator or not. So the content is what we're communicating about. The process is how we are communicating. And the process matters more. Most people especially when it comes to issues around differences, you know, differences in ideology in particular, over-focus on the content and under-focus on the process. So just to give you an idea, think about a conversation you had maybe like a month ago, maybe six months ago, or think about a conversation you had maybe a year ago at a party. Chances are you might have entirely forgotten the content. You don't even know what you talked about, but you probably still remember how you felt in that conversation. So the process determines how you feel. When our process is healthy, we can talk about anything without arguing. And when our process is not healthy, we can't talk about anything without arguing. You probably know people who really actually agree on just about everything or everything, and yet they still find ways to argue with each other. A healthy process has as its goal or its objective not to be right, which means to make the other person wrong, not to win, which means to make the other person lose. It is mutual understanding. It's connection. When our process is healthy, our goal is to have the other person understand what we're thinking and what we're feeling and perhaps what we need and to understand what they're thinking and what they're feeling right? That's it. That's why we communicate in the first place. The only reason we communicate is because we're not telepathic. So when your process is healthy and it reflects this goal, that means you communicate with this goal in mind and with an openness to what the other person is going, is trying to say. So it's important, you know, when we're talking about vegan, non-vegan, you know, interactions or communications, we always think about content. Who's going to like make the best case for why they're right. 
But underneath these differences, whenever you're communicating with somebody, whenever you're relating to somebody, let me back up. Communication is a form of relating. That's all it is. It's the primary way that we relate is through our communication. So everything I'm talking about here, it applies to relating in general, nonverbal communication as well. So underneath our differences in ideas or whatever it may be is a relationship between people. And that's where our focus needs to be. So when you're talking about veganism, you know, let's bring it to the specific of veganism and you're communicating, you want to share your ideas about veganism, your experience with veganism. Number one, do not make your goal to convert the other person because you can't, you can't force people to change. You can make your goal to share what you know to be true for yourself. And you can approach the conversation ideally through your own story. You know, whoever, it doesn't matter who I'm talking to, whether I'm on, you know, like live TV or standing on a stage in front of an audience of non-vegans or talking to my family and friends, I always talk about veganism through my own story. So if somebody says to you, why are you vegan, right? Very often vegans respond by listing all the reasons the other person should be vegan. Oh, I'm vegan because of the atrocity of the animals. What's happening? The United Nations says that, you know, animal agriculture is the number one cause of, you know, all sorts of environmental problems, so on and so forth. Quickly becomes a lecture and it turns into a debate. It becomes about whose ideas are right. Instead, share your story. So if somebody says to you, why are you vegan? Or are you vegan? For example, you know, if somebody says to me, are you vegan? First of all, I'll say, well, you know what? I am today, but for much of my life, I wasn't. My colleague, Tobias Lehner, talks about what he calls vegan amnesia. It's like people become vegan and they forget that they were ever not vegan. It's like we all just dropped out of a tree vegan. But it's important to remember your own carnism because that that helps you connect with the people that you're talking with. They're not fundamentally different from you. So if somebody says to me, you know, are you vegan? I will say I am today, but for much of my life, I wasn't. So they know I get them. We vegans were bilingual. People we're communicating with often are not. And then I'll say, you know, I actually became vegan. Um, you know, interestingly, I grew up with a dog who I loved, like I shared my story with you earlier today. And then I learned about animal agriculture and I was really shocked and I was horrified. And, and, and this is what I learned. Keep it short, of course. You know, as you point out, people can easily go into a lecture. Vegans have the tendency and, and people in general who feel strongly about an issue have the tendency to over-inform because we kind of want people to leave the conversation without having any justification left. Oh, really? You love baking gluten-free muffins? Great. Tapioca powder can help instead of eggs. And, you know, type 2 diabetes, we've got that covered. Just tell you, share your story. Keep it short. Here's what I learned. And I also recommend sharing information that you know, your own experience of car these carnistic defenses. So when I'm talking about my veganism, I'll say, you know, I, I just didn't, I never made the connection, you know, when I was, when I was the meat lover's pizza girl, you know, I never thought about the meat on my pizza, you know, or the meat on my plate as, as like once was an animal. I just didn't make that connection. So I talk about my own psychology a little bit and keep it short. And then if people want more information, it's a good idea to have like a handout to give them or a website to send them to, but they can find it. There's this great Buddhist saying that I, I quote a lot because I love it so much. And it says, we all have within us the seeds of greed, hatred, and desire. 
And we also have within us the seeds of love, compassion, and empathy. And our job is just to water the right seeds in ourselves and in others. So when people share information about how they've practiced compassion, responding to that by feeding the compassion, by watering their seeds of compassion is great. So if, you know, if a former vegan, for example, says, I used to be vegan, we can respond by saying, oh my God, well, why did you stop being vegan? Or we can say, oh, really? What encouraged you to be vegan in the first place? You know, so we bring them back to that compassion. When somebody says to you, your friends say, oh, by the way, I'm only eating organic or, or, or humane, whatever they call it, you know, meat, eggs, and dairy. You can say, great. What inspired you to want to make that change? Because they're obviously, they're paying more money. They're putting forth more effort. So I would be curious about what motivated them to go down that path and encourage them and, and be grateful for that. The awareness of veganism is growing all around the world. I've had the privilege of traveling to many, many places around the world, over 50 countries, talking about this issue with people in positions of leadership. And I have not seen a single exception to the fact that awareness of veganism and support for veganism is really growing exponentially. And so I want to just, you know, thank everybody who is a part of this and, you know, point out that you are you know, a part of something that is greater than your individual self. You are a part of a social movement that is intimately connected with other social movements that I believe will be looked back upon as one of the most transformational movements in human history. There we go. I hope you found that interesting, instructive, illuminating, and clarifying. Of course, if you did, please share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. Quick one before I let you go. I am often asked what supplements I take. Probably one of the most common questions that I get actually So I finally got around and created an in-depth supplement guide, totally free, that you can download along with a bunch of other free guides at plantproof.com. Inside, it contains information about daily supplements for everyday wellness, along with performance supplements. The daily supplement that I personally take is a multi-nutrient called Essential 8 by NutriKind. This is a product I formulated for NutriKind alongside their team that specifically contains the eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall a little short in. Omega-3s from algae, B12, vitamin D3 from mushroom, iodine from seaweed, calcium, zinc, selenium, and iron. The right forms in the right doses to complement your plant-rich diet. To find out more or subscribe to a monthly delivery, head to NutriKind.com. That's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com. And use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off your purchase. So in summary, grab a copy of the supplement guide at PLANTPROOF.com. And if you are in the market for a daily multi-nutrient to cover your bases, head to NutriKind.com and use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off.
On that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and for your ongoing interest in evidence-based nutrition. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days' time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.